Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad podcast. I'm Michelle, and today we have three short interviews. First, we chat with Laura Ricci about her life as a global nomad. Then we chat with Laura Snyder, the international representative on the taxpayer advocate panel, TAP. And finally, we chat with Mary Louise Serrato, executive director of ACA, to get an update from Washington, DC. Let's get into it with our first interview with Laura Ricci. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you explain to our audience who may not know what exactly a global nomad is? Well, a global nomad is someone who spends most or all of their year traveling the globe. And what are the differences between a global nomad and an American expat? Expats are located outside the U.S. and make a home in one location. Nomads move around a good deal without making a home anywhere. Some nomads travel fast, some travel slow. I tend to mix it up, spending as much as a couple of months in some places and a few days in other places. And are there differences between global nomads who are seniors versus the millennials in the community? Global nomads tend to be of two types. The younger nomads, also sometimes called digital nomads, are often working while they travel. So they're carrying their laptop to hostels around the world and doing some type of coding or digital work. Senior nomads, like myself, are retired and we're traveling full time. Could you tell us a bit of how you became a global nomad? What attracted you to the lifestyle? I always wanted to travel when I retired. And I took to heart the advice of friends to travel before age and infirmity got in the way. World travel was attractive, and I realized that if I gave up my home base and the expenses of having a home in the U.S., I could travel the world on a pretty generous budget and be comfortable. How long have you been a global nomad, and how many countries have you visited? 2020 has been unusual. I only traveled to five countries that year. I started traveling in 2018, and I've been to 25 countries so far. How does one prepare, both mentally and practically, before traveling the world for an undetermined amount of time? I started preparing about two years before I launched. Of course, I was terrified of overlooking something, so I was very thorough in my research. And more importantly, I needed time to mentally prepare to jettison my home and lifestyle and make such a big leap into the unknown. As a global nomad, I have to be prepared to do everything on the road. As one of my fellow nomads, Mark Chandler, told me, this isn't our vacation, it's our life. Nomads we can't have the attitude that we'll sleep after our vacation. That would kill us. We're doing laundry and filing our tax returns while we travel. So we take it easy and give ourselves plenty of downtime for our personal business. Of course, it's rather exotic to be filing my tax returns from a hostel in Christchurch, New Zealand, and itinerary research from an apartment in Paris. 
For example, one of the things I needed to research was banking because I discovered that it can be a problem. Under the US federal regulations, FATCA may come into play. And if your bank or other financial institutions get uncomfortable with your being outside of the US so much, they may lock your accounts and ask you to get your money out. And that was a really scary proposition. So I ended up opening accounts at four different banks, trying to figure out how to work around this as a threat. And that research led me to ACA, the American Citizens Abroad. And the workshops and podcasts are one of my favorite resources as a global nomad. I sat in a podcast about the credit union, State Department Federal Credit Union, and I joined ACA that day and went through the process of opening accounts with State Department Federal Credit Union. Finally, I hoped that my worries were over because I had a credit union that's accustomed to working with people like me. By the end of my first year, when I returned to the U.S. for my visit, I started closing all those other bank accounts, and now I just use State Department Federal Credit Union for my banking. Could you tell us a bit about the global nomad community? How big is it, and how vibrant is it? Well, when I came up with this audacious idea, I had no idea that others were already doing this. I found and started following several global nomads who are already on the road. And the tips I got from their websites have been invaluable. It's one of the reasons that I have my website is because the information ages over time, current nomads posts are more valuable to the people that are coming behind me. And so I've been paying back by posting tips and tricks that I've learned while I'm on the road. Now, when the pandemic hit, I wondered, and a lot of folks wondered if this might be the end of people joining us. But instead, it seems that folks are more interested than ever. And I see blogs and websites coming alive again with new members who want to be ready when global travel is possible again. Thanks. We'll make sure that there's a link to your blog in our show notes. And we may have covered this, but I'll ask it just in case. Who is the typical global nomad? Oh boy, well, that's a tough one. We seem to be a diverse slice of America. There are couples and singles. In fact, single women becoming nomads has a huge amount of interest. Some folks have a lot more money than I do and they are keeping their home base and traveling pretty luxuriously. And at the other end of the spectrum, I meet folks that are venturing out on a budget that's limited to their social security check. I'm in the middle someplace, I have to watch my budget, but I use geo-arbitrage to offset expensive destinations, hello Paris, with (laughs) modestly locations like Thailand and Vietnam. I love trains, so I'm really happy to use trains rather than fly. Last year I took the Trans-Siberian train from St. Petersburg, Russia, through Siberia, Mongolia, and China. Otherwise, I subscribe to Scott's cheap flights, and I often end up selecting my next destination because I found a great flight price to move me to the next continent. Could you explain to our listeners what the acronym FIRE, as in F-I-R-E, stands for? 
Sure. FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. This idea of aggressive savings so that you can retire early has become very popular. And I've really enjoyed reading about people learning to be frugal, save like fiends, and retire to be global nomads or whatever their dream is. Some of these folks are retiring in their 30s, but the majority of them are retiring in their 40s and 50s. How does the concept of FIRE change one's outlook on ideas such as wealthy versus rich or what we actually need versus what we want? For those of us who lived on a budget and saved for retirement, FIRE is just common sense, but on steroids. Avoiding lifestyle creep and prioritizing saving is the magic of being able to retire early. So the challenge is to avoid being turned into a good consumer and understanding how much you give up if you can't live without a new car every two years, like who does that anymore, or a house that you stuff with things that you bought on impulse. I would have been better off if I'd learned about fire when I was younger, but I did prioritize saving for retirement, so I'm better off than many folks. And what I love about the FIRE movement is seeing people reject the mentality of using silly purchases as a salve for something that's missing in their lives. What's missing is having your financial independence. So I think the FIRE folks have it right that you don't miss the silly stuff your friends are spending money on. But we should all be fighting like mad against losing our financial independence. I'm the two-bag nomad online, and so when all your possessions are in two pieces of luggage, I live constrained by choice. And wow, does that save money. If I buy a shirt, one has to go. A new pair of shoes, another one has to go. What personality traits make for a more successful global nomadic experience? I think resourcefulness is key. When you're blocked from doing something, you have to figure out another way. And resourcefulness is probably my favorite hobby, so I think this is a requirement. I don't really see myself as giving up anything on the road. I live in places that are as comfortable or more comfortable than my last home. After all, I don't have a home I'm paying for in the U.S. anymore. So I use a lot of Airbnbs and they've been great. And then I dabble in hostels and hotels, just depending on what the circumstance is and how long my stay is gonna be. One tip I have for newbies, it's a secret. Every place you go has drug stores where you can buy anything you suddenly need. <laughs> Shopping expeditions are so much more fun when you have to make a pharmacist in Kazakhstan understand that you want dental floss. When I started out and looked at all kinds of advice, a lot of people carry sewing kits and half of their medicine chest, but that's really behavior for tourists because when you're a tourist, you're moving so fast that you really don't have time to stop to go buy some aspirin. And so I started out that way and had some of that stuff with me, but I've gradually emptied most of it out of my bag because 
I don't want to miss the chance to try shampoo in Thailand that's made with ginger. And my favorite balm is a lavender balm I picked up in France. I saw a fellow in Delhi with a coal-fired stove heating up his irons, and I ran to my apartment to get something for him to iron for me. He charged me more, by the way, for taking his picture than ironing the top I brought to him. What are the benefits and drawbacks to the lifestyle? The benefits are first that I'm seeing the world. Also, if the weather gets bad, I just pack my bag and go someplace more pleasant. I'm not anchored to a location. The drawbacks are, or were, when I started out, that friends who were technical Luddites lost touch. But the good news about the pandemic in 2020 is that everyone had to learn how to use video conferences, and the world is now pretty well connected with good quality internet available almost everywhere. During the pandemic, I've been busy connecting with people I haven't had the time to chat with and people who previously couldn't be reached on Skype or Zoom. And I don't have pets. I love dogs and cats, so I do miss that. How has being a global nomad changed you? What life lessons have you learned? And what have you learned about yourself? I'm more confident of this decision than I was before I left. I fretted and worried about making the right decisions. You know, would I regret giving up my lovely home? Do I have the right luggage? I bought four different backpacks and tested them on short trips and three rolling duffels. How will I manage the bills? Which phone company will work for me, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I was just a walking nervous Nelly. But like most global nomads, I gave up most of my things, but I put precious items in storage. And like all of the global nomads that I follow, after three years of paying for storage, I emptied it all this year. Got sent it away, gave it away to friends, and sold off things. That was the last regret I was expecting. But as one of my friends said, it's only stuff. Storage was expensive, and I realized that I'm unlikely to return to that city, so rather than haul that stuff around, it's time to get rid of it. During that process of emptying out the storage, you know, some days I felt like I was erasing myself, but mostly I felt relief. And now that everything's gone, it's been gone for about four months, I'm feeling nothing but relief. It really is just stuff. Any last thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, if people listening to this are intrigued by it, join ACA. The podcasts are free and they'll add immeasurably to your reservoir of knowledge. My website is Too Bag Nomad, and there are too many websites to count. Google is your friend to find other people that are doing something similar to what you're imagining might be an audacious plan. And good luck. We'll see you on the road. Thanks so much, Laura, for, for the compliments and taking the time to join us today. And now presenting our interview with Laura Snyder, whom we spoke with near the end of January about the latest with TAP. Welcome back to the ACA podcast, Laura. Thanks for joining us today. 
Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you about TAP again. What's new with TAP? What has happened with TAP since the last time you were with us? Well, just as a brief refresher for anyone who hasn't heard of TAP, TAP is the Taxpayer Advocacy Panel, and it's a federal advisory committee to the IRS. And we're made up of 75 people, almost all representing different states in the country in Puerto Rico, one international member, and that at the moment is me. And what we do is we solicit and examine suggestions from ordinary people, taxpayers, suggestions they have for how the IRS can improve their services. We're looking for systemic issues, not individual ones. And we take their suggestions and we do any sort of research that's normally required to understand what the real problems are, to understand what the possible solutions are. And then we craft uh, fairly detailed recommendations to the IRS for how they can improve their services based on that taxpayer suggestion. So to go back to your question, this past TAP year, 2020, we were very busy. We worked on a lot of recommendations that were submitted to the IRS. I will focus on the ones that we worked on that are directly relevant to overseas taxpayers. So we worked on issues relating to delays in delivery of postal mail and the IRS not respecting the obligatory use of registered mail. We worked on the difficulties that overseas taxpayers have in accessing online accounts. And then for the few that managed to have them, the difficulties they have in actually using them. We prepared recommendations on the difficulties that overseas taxpayers have making payments to the IRS from overseas, as well as receiving payments from the IRS. For example, the stimulus payments that people got in 2020. We worked on difficulties that overseas taxpayers sometimes have with electronic filing, with e-filing, and notably when their spouse doesn't have a social security number or ITIN. And we worked on a bigger issue about the difficulties taxpayers overseas have just to find competent and affordable professional assistance when they need it. That's actually, when I look at that list, I'm quite impressed we managed to work on that many things just in one year. Your tenure will be up at the end of 2021. How will TAP recruit for your replacement? As I mentioned, TAP has members that represent all 50 states and Puerto Rico and one international member. And that's me at the moment, but my term expires at the end of 2021. And TAP appointments are for three years. So mine started in January of 2019, and then it will end at the end of 2021. The members' terms are staggered. So each year, about one-third of TAP members see their term expire, and then another third begins. But because my term expires at the end of 2021, that means during the course of 2021, TAP will recruit my replacement. And TAP's recruitment process is pretty long, generally more than six months, probably even more than seven or eight months. Generally, it begins in April, give or take a month. And at that time, TAP posts on its website and then will otherwise make announcements, say in social media, that it's accepting written applications. And then that written application period will remain open for about a month or so. So once TAP gets those written applications, it will select some candidates for a telephone interview, which is normally with one person who's a TAP staff and then one TAP member. And then on that basis, TAP will narrow down its list of candidates even more. And at that stage, the people that are still on that short list, this will happen probably in July, August, maybe September. They'll be asked to submit proof of their US citizenship and they'll be asked to undergo an FBI background check. 
while they won't have anything to do about this, they will be checked out to make sure that they have their in compliance, basically tax compliance. I don't want to scare anybody with that. It just means that there'll be a check that they are filing returns and that there aren't any issues with it. I would say if you haven't heard from the IRS, you're probably going to be fine. Just to let you know, again, how long the recruitment process is, normally the candidates that are ultimately selected to start the following year, they won't know that until December or possibly even January. For example, when I was selected, I didn't know, I think it was late December when I got the first notification from TAP, late December 2018, that I was then going to be starting as a TAP member in January of 2019. What I guess what I want to emphasize there is it's a lengthy process, but it will be going on this year. It will start in the spring sometime. And I think it's very important that good candidates apply so that we can make sure we get a good candidate into the position for the following three years. What are the biggest issues your replacement will face? Well, that is a very good question. And it would take me a long time to respond in full. So I'm just going to give you a summary here. There are a lot of issues that TAP members face, and then there are issues, I wouldn't say a lot, but there are issues that all TAP members face, and there are issues that only the international member faces. So some of the issues that TAP members face would be the slowness of the TAP process. You really need a lot of patience. You work on something, it could take you months, if not an entire year, to work on something. You submit it to the IRS, and you don't hear back from the IRS till months later. Another issue is not all TAP members will carry their weight. So sometimes the people that do do the work, it falls on a smaller number of people, which is too bad because I think TAP could do a lot more if everyone carried their weight. And sometimes it's easy to get discouraged because of how long things take, because the IRS sometimes gives the impression that they're not taking the recommendation seriously, which isn't always the case. I think sometimes they give that impression that they are, and then later you see that they've implemented TAP's recommendation. So you see that they actually did take it seriously. Those are issues that all TAP members will face, regardless of where they come from. Then there's some issues that only the international member faces. And these issues stem from the fact that pretty much no one else at TAP will understand international issues the way the international member will. And that makes sense in that that's pretty much why they wanted to put an international member on TAP, to bring that understanding to the panel. But what this means is that you have to spend a lot of time educating your fellow TAP members, TAP staff, and IRS staff on just what the issues are. And this can take a fair amount of time, can take a lot of energy. Occasionally, it takes some emotion, which there are stories there I could tell. What I found this past year is that it actually can really be a burden to be the only person with knowledge on international issues because what you find is people maybe for whatever reason, I don't know if they're intimidated or whatever reason it is, they feel as though they have to take a back seat and let you take the initiatives and you do the work because after all in their heads, the international members know more than they do. And I think what they don't see is that that's a really difficult burden to put on one person. And it's a shame. I wasn't able to effectively suggest to them that really as members of TAP and especially as members of the Special Projects Committee, 
that are supposed to work on international issues, that really it's incumbent upon them to learn the things they need to learn to be able to be effective in that position. So that's something I want to work on a little bit more this coming year to maybe communicate that a little bit more effectively. What's your takeaway? What did you learn since serving on TAP? Has the experience changed your perspective on anything? I think what I've learned is how important TAP is and especially how important the international member of TAP is. TAP has not always had an international member. The role is relatively new. I'm only the third person to serve in the role. And for a variety of reasons, my two predecessors weren't especially active. I'm the first one to really be active, which might be why sometimes people mistakenly describe me as the first international member. But what I've seen is the potential that's offered to the international member to use TAP to raise international issues to the IRS, that these are issues that otherwise TAP wouldn't have taken up because they wouldn't have recognized that they are issues and, and how they need to be addressed. And so even if TAP did take it up without the international member, they wouldn't have known how to address it effectively. And I think a lot of people, at least some people that are not TAP members, certainly TAP members don't do this, but some people who are outside of TAP are tempted to downplay TAP's role and downplay the role of the international member. And they do so maybe by citing all the times the IRS has rejected TAP recommendations, including international ones. But I think that that's missing the point. It's true. For sure, it's true that the IRS rejects a large percentage of TAP recommendations, not just the international ones, all of them. And it's true that this can be pretty disheartening. Actually, most of the time, it's not for me. And the reason why is that I see that with every rejected recommendation, it serves two important purposes. You have alerted the IRS to the problem. Uh, whether it, at that moment in time it decides to take action on it is another thing but you've alerted the IRS to the problem. When the IRS rejects the recommendation, the IRS is then on record that they've been alerted to the problem and that they've refused to address it. And I think it's very important to get the IRS on record on both of those points. And I think when it comes to overseas taxpayers and international taxation, I think it's doubly important to get the IRS on the record because those rejections establish a clear record that the IRS doesn't accept that it's got a responsibility to administer the U.S. tax system on a global basis, even though all the Americans who live overseas are required to comply with this tax system, that the IRS has such a difficult time administering. So I think for all those reasons, it's, it's important that the right person can replace me at TAP, someone who has the time and the energy to educate their fellow TAP members and TAP staff and the IRS and international issues, and who will have the drive and the energy and the patience to stick with it. And I should say that the IRS definitely does accept some TAP recommendations. I'll give you an example. In 2019, we submitted to the IRS a recommendation that it expand its use of other languages, both the number of languages that it offers services in and the ways that it does it, and notably with respect to written materials. And the IRS has not implemented our recommendation in full because it was a very expansive recommendation. But it did, during the course of 2020, expand some of its online materials into a greater number of languages. And if you've had the chance to see the Taxpayer First Act report to Congress, you'll see the IRS is proposing even greater expansion of the use of other languages. What more can TAP do to raise issues of Americans overseas? Well, I'd slightly rephrase that question. I would say 
given that it's TAP's mandate to raise issues to the IRS, then I think I would ask what more can TAP do to more effectively raise to the IRS the issues of overseas Americans? And I would say, firstly, the most urgent response is education. I think that all members of TAP, and especially those who are on the Special Projects Committee, which again is the committee focused on international issues, they need to have more and better training that's specific to international taxation. The members of TAP, all of them are U.S. taxpayers, but save for me and the representative from Puerto Rico, they're all domestic taxpayers. Not only do they not know the situation of overseas taxpayers is radically different from theirs, but they don't know that they don't know. And they don't know that in order to be effective as members of TAP, they need to know. So I think I'd then go up one level and I would say, I think TAP staff needs themselves to be much more aware of international issues. And they need to design TAP's orientation and other educational activities to include sessions specifically focused on overseas taxation. And I think actually that's an extremely important step that TAP needs to take in order for the entire organization to be in a position to more effectively address international issues. And then I guess I would emphasize again that the members of TAP and especially the members of Special Projects Committee need to develop a greater interest in international issues, a greater willingness to take it upon themselves to learn more about them, because I think that the effectiveness is limited if they take a back seat and say, well, we've got an international member, so she can handle all of that. I'm hopeful that this year, the members of the Special Products Committee will be willing to take on some of that work and engage in that education process. And I'm hoping I'll be able to help them do that. So I would say, going back to the fact that TAP is going to be recruiting my successor this year, I would say that it's important that my successor also be willing and you know enthusiastic about helping and encouraging their fellow TAP members to take the time and effort to learn about international taxation. Great, thanks Laura for chatting with us today. Thank you, Michelle. And I'd like to encourage anyone living overseas, Americans who are listening to this, who might be thinking about applying to TAP, if they'd like to talk to me about it, please don't hesitate to contact me. I'd be welcome to answer your questions. And Michelle, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about TAP. Thank you. We appreciate it. Finally, presenting our interview with Mary Louise Serrato with ACA to get an update from Washington, D.C. Welcome to the podcast, Mary Louise. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me back. Now that the Biden administration is settling into place, what will ACA's strategy be for the new Congress and administration? So our strategy going into 2021 is obviously to meet with the new congressional offices, new people who have been voted into the Senate and the House, and also to go back to our quote unquote old champions that we've been speaking to about all American overseas issues, taxation, FATCA, a whole laundry list of problems and issues that we're trying to bring to their attention. As many of you might know, Congressman Holding did not run for re-election, so he is no longer in the House, but we will be looking, uh, as I said, for new members and also to activate offices that we've been in as a result of the write-in campaign. We'll also be meeting with the new administrative staff on Treasury, the IRS, on the Joint Committee of Taxation, on the Tax Committees, the House Ways and Means Tax Committee, and the Senate Finance Committee. 
What do you think the chances are for RBT in the new administration? It doesn't seem that their focus is on Americans overseas at the moment. For sure, the new administration in Congress right now is going to be super focused on COVID and on dealing with the pandemic and also on how to keep the economy healthy and to get people back to work. So right now, in the first months, they're going to be focused on those issues for sure. But Congress will be looking at tax legislation. So there is an opportunity for ACA and there is an opportunity for advocacy on residency-based taxation. Our key focus is going to be on hearings. I think you've heard me say this before on podcasts, but I just can't stress enough that without hearings by the committees that write tax legislation, the House Ways and Means Committee, getting RBT on the legislative agenda will be difficult. Not impossible, but it'll be difficult. So that's why we need hearings. Hearings facilitate that because they put on record all the data and the research, the testimonials that Congress needs to be able to investigate the problems and come up with solutions. What do you think the chances are for hearings? We think they're really good. We've already been back in contact with members of the House Ways and Means Committee, Tax Writing Committee. 20,000 messages have gone into Congress as a result of our writing campaign. And again, can't stress enough, anybody who's listening to the podcast, please, please, please go to our website, find the write-in campaign and submit your comments. Most offices that we have followed up with from the campaign, they acknowledge that they have heard about the problem and they also acknowledge that something needs to be done, in particular when it comes to banking walkout of FATCA. That has been a problem that I would say the majority of offices up on the Hill in the House and in the Senate are very, very much aware of. Has ACA already begun working with Congress and the new administration? Yes, a big yes. We're a few weeks into the new year and into the new Congress. ACA has already attended a virtual conference where we heard from the Joint Committee of Taxation, the Senate Finance Committee, and the House Ways and Means Committee. And for people who are on this call who might not know what those committees are all about, those are the essential committees. Those are the committees that will advise on tax legislation. They will write a lot of the regulations for tax legislation. So really, these are the important committees. These are the committees that will advise the Congress. So it's essential that the conversation continues with those committees and those staffers. At that virtual conference, ACA asked specifically about residence-based taxation. And here again, what we heard from the committee and members is that Congress is aware and concerned. They know that something needs to be done either through legislation or through regulation. ACA is also advising the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, on the Taxpayer First legislation. The IRS issued a report earlier this month and acknowledged that the overseas community is underserved and that they are working on systems to make it easier for overseas filers to get information from a qualified IRS agent, one who can answer their specific questions about international tax filing, allow overseas taxpayers also to create online accounts and manage their U.S. tax payments in communications with the IRS via online and not have to sit hours on end on a phone call. ACA will be following up on the work of the IRS on this to help facilitate international and overseas taxpayers, and we sit on the advisory committee to the IRS to advise them on these problems and give them our input from the community. 
There's lots of chatter about making RBT a reality through treasury regulations and that Janet Yellen and her staff have the authority to do this. Is it possible? That's a really good question. There is lots that treasury can do with regulations. Certainly, treasury can adopt same country exemption or SEC for FATCA reporting, which would go a long way towards alleviating the banking lockout problem. ACA recommended this to the Treasury back in the Obama administration, and unfortunately, it didn't get picked up. Treasury can also make regulatory changes to the PFIC regime, the passive foreign investment companies, which many foreign pensions and other investments fall under this category. But the underlying problems of RBT still remain, even if the Treasury were to make the aforementioned regulations. Changes to FATCA, changes to the PFIC regulation, to alleviate some of the problems, but at the core, residence-based taxation is not that. Citizenship-based taxation would still remain. Treasury, in our opinion, cannot implement residence-based taxation by changing or creating new categories of taxpayers. There has to be underlying legislation giving the Treasury authority to do this. Picking up rules that Treasury used in other legislation and simply applying them without underlying legislation, we don't believe can happen. Congress is definitely going to want to weigh in on a change like this. They will want to run numbers. They will want to see data and research on the subject. And again, this is why hearings are so very essential. As they put on official record with the Congress, the data, the research, testimonials, the information that Congress needs to correct the problems. A lot of that data is already with the tax writing committees, it's already with congressional offices. And that's really great. It's great that ACA's work and other organizations' work is in those offices, but it has to be put on record and it has to be presented in front of the committee so they can understand the breadth of the problem and be able then to do and make the right changes through legislation and regulation. Any other news to report? Yes, a major effort was just launched, the announcement of the RBT, a Residence-Based Taxation Coalition. This is a group of advocacy organizations, tax reform organizations, think tanks, tax and investment professionals who have come together and are calling for residence-based taxation to be adopted. The coalition isn't putting forth any platforms or proposals. Individual groups can work on that and can put forth ideas how they think it's best to implement RBT. But the coalition is there to reinforce that the time has come for residence-based taxation to be taken up with the Congress and adopted in some form. We're really looking forward to this coalition having impact and to having other organizations interested in the subject matter join the coalition. You can find out more about this on the RBT Coalition website. Thanks to Laura, Laura, and Mary Louise for joining us today. The American Citizens Abroad podcast is a monthly podcast that is published the second Tuesday of each month. It is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. You can find us on Twitter at ACA underscore podcast, on Facebook at American Citizens Abroad podcast, or you can email us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us. 